and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub. Series 8, Session 8, it's Thursday the 17th of March 2022, so welcome back. Uh, this session's titled Immunology 101, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. We recognise their diversity, resilience, and the ongoing place that First Nations people hold in our communities. We pay our respect to Elders past and present, and commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding, respect, and reconciliation. So it's GPs, I think we, it's fair to say we pride ourselves in knowing quite a bit about everything, uh, differentiating presentations and sitting with uncertainty. And so far, this pandemic has challenged us in 2020 to refresh our knowledge of epidemiology and public health, in 2021 to step up to a relationship with vaccinology, and in 2022 to confront those knowledge recesses of med school immunology. I don't think I'll be alone in suggesting that these snippets of immunology banked down dusty hallways of memories have proved both that most the most but um, both the most difficult to retrieve but also the most compelling knowledge to seek out but within the study of immunology is perhaps the code for enabling us to better differentiate many of the contemporary presentations to primary care for research in this area has potentially exploded since we're all in med school and advances in technology enabled new insights into the complex interplay between host genetics epigenetics and microbiome pathogens toxic stress and mediators of communicable diseases on inflammatory pathways so there's just so much we could talk about, but with our eye on SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, or now are we calling it endemic? Help me out, guys. Um, let's just start there. So this morning, we're going to refresh our knowledge of innate and adaptive immune responses, vaccine and the immune response, COVID-19 and the immune response, but some of those common immunological complications from the vaccine and COVID, and perhaps a bit about how they're mediated. So let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrest, a GP, and I'm zooming in from the lands of the Wuthering people today, facilitate, uh, coordinators, uh, Fee Quigley and um, Whitney Flower uh, assisting us today um, and let's have a look at what we've got on the agenda. Oh, we're, yeah, just whipping through all this. Oh, actually, before I pause there, um, now, unfortunately, we don't have a case for today, so I'm going to put forward some questions to our um, didactic presenter, um, but I do want to know from you guys. Uh, we've got Carolyn Bartolo coming next week. She could tell us a little bit about um, what's left what, what you know if you've got burning questions actually let's let's say this if you've got burning questions about oral antivirals um put them through and that will press us to make next week about oral antivirals i'm sure she'll talk about citrofamab and some of the stuff that we're seeing around escape but perhaps we're more interested in what's happening coming up to winter making sense of why everyone's talking about preparing for winter really what's going on there what's up with that let's get carolyn to um help us make sense and then we're going to finish off this series uh welcoming back dom nom Thobie, and we're going to talk about all the different tests for COVID, PCR, rats, serologies, anything else we want to um, hear about. And then we're going to break for Easter. So what are we going to come back to in Series 9? What do you want to discuss? Again, we're going to be putting forward an evaluation next week. But please, if you've got some um, things that you'd like to talk about, you're going to send us cases. That'll be how we'll drive the season. So um, not so much about hearing, uh, you know, what you'd like to hear about, but if we get a long COVID case, we'll do long COVID. If we get a long COVID vignette, we'll do long COVID. Um, whatever it is that you send us vignettes and cases about in the next few weeks, that'll um, guide our series for next um, series. Thanks. And here's the learning outcomes for today. Um, don't forget to fill in the evaluation at the end and away we'll go. So Kate Graham's going to bring us policy updates and clinical guidelines. And we welcome back Dr. Avindya Amili, uh, Infectious Diseases Registrar from Bowen Health. And he's going to lead us in a 
uh, Immunology 101. Um, we've got a Q&A and then we'll finish up with Naomi White with a PHN update. Um, okay, over to you, Kate. Good morning, everyone. So this week, after our long weekend, um, we've been seeing quite a few more cases throughout Victoria um, and as well in New South Wales. So at the moment, um, it's a little bit uncertain as to whether this marks you know, increased socialisation over the long weekend, people delaying their tests until after the long weekend, or whether we're actually seeing now the effects of the BA2 um, variant of Omicron. Um, where that we know that is a um, probably a factor of um, 40% more infectious. So it's 1.4 times more infectious than um, Omicron, both of which are about four times more infectious than Delta. So in terms of updates, uh, you may have heard from the National Cabinet that there are some talks about isolation time for contacts and um, what I wanted to make sure that we are actually communicating out at the moment is none of that has actually changed in terms of our policy and guidance within Victoria as yet. So people are still required to isolate as household-like contacts for seven days unless they fall into one of the employment categories with exemptions. Um, where there are some changes this week, post-infection, where it was 30 days um, where you didn't have to undertake asymptomatic testing or quarantine, at the end of this week, it will move to eight weeks to be in line with the CDNA national guidance on that. Um, so if you have a look at the National Cabinet um, report, it may give us a bit of a flag as to what might be coming up. And I think from my point of view, it's not so much on focusing on the quarantine time for household or household-like contacts. It's about sort of that identification of, you know, whether we are needing to do PCRs on all people who are symptomatic, which is now not the case, but where we should be targeting our PCRs and thinking more as we move into winter about multiplex viral PCRs to sort of be able to identify influenza as it comes out. So I'll just go on to the next slide. Um, these are just some uh, rapid antigen test eligibility flowcharts that are from the testing system bulletin that go out to all the state testing um, locations. So these are just ones that you can keep in your toolkit when you're advising people as to what um, they're eligible for. At the moment, this is how they progress through in terms of symptomatic and the next one will be asymptomatic. So it's really about who is positive, what they have to do, um, who gets rat tests. Everyone should now be getting um, five rapid antigen tests provided from state testing centres. So I'll just go on to the next slide and probably the next one after that because that one's just the asymptomatic flowchart. So in terms of vaccinations, um, there isn't much difference to last week. Um, just wanted to flag in terms of the planning of fourth doses, we, there are loads and loads of questions from patients about when their fourth dose is due now that everyone has been relatively good in some sectors of the population in terms of getting that booster dose in. Um, but this is sort of the fourth dose boosters rather than fourth doses for people who are immunocompromised. There's no guidance on this yet, but we will expect at some stage to be looking at boosting the population further. Um, so I think the immunocompromised population who may have already had their third dose, a lot of them will now be due for fourth doses 
Um, so making sure that you're not forgetting them as they come through, that their three months isn't up because they may have been given the sort of six-month booster guidance when they were initially given their immunocompromised first dose and may not have realised that that three-month timing is relevant for them too. So I'll just go on to the next slide. Um, just as a quick uh, break from COVID, as we have been doing for the past couple of weeks, Japanese and Kefalitis, we do have confirmation that there are affected piggeries in Western Victoria. Um, mostly so far within Victoria, we're seeing the piggeries that are affected and confirmed to be affected are really sort of in the northern um, regions of Victoria. So not so much along the coastal um, and Geelong south coast regions at the moment, which is good. Um, but sort of from that Horsham to through to Bendigo line and above, um, that's sort of where we're seeing a lot of the cases coming out. Um, vaccinations are currently available for priority groups. And the groups really being prioritised at the moment are piggery workers, um, people who reside on piggeries, um, and people who have non-deferrable visits to piggeries um, and abattoirs where um, pigs are being processed. And also as well, thinking about environmental health workers, people who are actually involved in trapping mosquitoes um, and people working in laboratories with Japanese encephalitis are the other priority groups. So while you may get a lot of questions um, from the general public related to vaccination, uh, particularly sort of coming up to Easter when many people may be heading away to high-risk regions, at present there's not enough vaccination supply to sort of be looking beyond um, the priority groups. Um, where we did want to sort of um, be flagging these is that serology um, is also recommended to be done at the time of vaccination. We don't wait for a serological result before vaccinating. Um, very soon as well, um, we will be sending out letters to general practice um, looking at retrospective reporting of any potential cases that you may have been seeing in general practice over the past few months. So while we know that there is six or seven cases confirmed throughout Victoria and probably nine um, likely cases in total, this likely represents a higher amount overall of um, disease burden throughout the population. So there are probably some cases that have been around for some time that may have been diagnosed with something else, that they may have been seen in hospital, had central nervous system infections, um, but may not have been detected. This is something that's being asked across hospitals, infectious diseases units, ICUs, um, anyone who's had that sort of encephalitic presentation but has come up with no diagnostic um, infection. So that information will be coming out soon. Uh, the two key links in there, the information for health professionals, Japanese encephalitis in Victoria has been updated. And the Japanese encephalitis virus serology and vaccination information for general practitioners has information about the serological samples to request, as well as the information as to how to order vaccinations. Um, Linda will provide a bit of an update later in terms of sort of coordinating um, whether practices come on board as um, a practice within the PHN um, because of the limited supply and the limited areas that are affected at the moment. Um, it's more efficient to sort of target that within practice groups rather than people be ordering one or two vaccines. Um, but by all means, there are contacts available throughout health pathways as well. 
Um, and sort of with the health pathways, mosquito-borne diseases, there's all the links and information to the Department of Health contacts as well as our own infectious disease contacts for any queries and questions. So I'll just go on to the next slide. Influenza will have more updates next week, but if you wanted to do some pre-thinking, pre-reading about why we probably don't need to be very excited this week um, in terms of our seasonal influenza vaccines when all our patients come in going, is the flu vaccine available yet? Um, there is the resource from ATAGI and the ATAGI guidance on seasonal influenza vaccines in 2022. Um, the main thing is recognising that the vaccinations only have a peak um, effectiveness of sort of that three to four month period. Um, and we've, we've only really seen probably 21 cases of influenza in Victoria in total so far this year, um, which isn't huge amounts. And we're really not seeing huge um, outbreaks overseas, despite the fact that there are definitely outbreaks occurring of influenza in various locations. Um, some of that is relating to the fact that everyone's testing for COVID rather than testing for influenza in patients presenting with respiratory illness. And that goes for patients self-testing as well for COVID and maybe not presenting in the same way that they may have previously. So it's something to keep on board. We'll talk more next week about that. Health Pathways just flagging that mosquito-borne diseases in Victoria page, which should be live with an update this morning, hopefully. Um, and I think that is all. Oh, primary care priorities. Definitely can't leave the priorities out. So what we wanted to do each week is have a bit of a chat about some of our priority groups within um, our general practice cohorts, who's missing out, who we need to target a bit more highly in terms of interventions um, and those kind of things. So at present, our 40 to 49-year-olds, um, and, you know, that 45 to 49-year-old health check um, still sticks in your mind. It's like that's a population with high rates of modifiable risk factors just in general health terms. Um, we know that they've had low rates of health screening over the past 24 months um, and low booster dose percentages at present, high rates of household infection, and like everyone else in 24 months or more into the pandemic, they're all overwhelmed. They're all working really hard. They've probably used up all their sick leave, their normal leave, and they're not really that enthused about coming in for um, what they see as deferrable health visits. So it's how we can think about getting these people into primary care again um, is something to really consider over the next few months. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So this is um, a study that was published in Nature uh, magazine. And this was really done on sort of large cohorts um, studies, looking beyond the first 30 days after infection, individuals with COVID are at increased risk of incident cardiovascular disease across numerous categories. Um, so that's cerebrovascular, heart disease, myocarditis, arrhythmias, um, thromboembolic disease, and it was really quite widespread. And this was even evident among individuals who were not hospitalised, which is kind of one of the main things that I wanted to flag. So with this population who probably are at that age group where if they've been vaccinated, they probably haven't been hospitalised, they haven't been that unwell, but they may have pre-existing cardiac conditions or pre-existing risk factors for vascular disease that may put them at a higher risk overall to consider. So with that, I think that may lead in hopefully to Arvind's um, talk. 
on all the immunological features um, of COVID, which may make this make more sense to us, hopefully. But I'd love to hear in the chat as to how anyone is targeting, particularly those 40 to 49-year-olds who won't get boosted or can't get boosted or are too busy to get boosted, how we can get patients back in for routine screening and which patients do we really need to think about screening for those more specific cardiovascular issues post-COVID um, in our COVID cohorts and how we get them back in. It's how we get them in and how we as doctors have time to actually see them amongst everything else that we have to do in our days. So, no, not small issues. Thanks, so Kate. That, I'll hand back to you. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. I have to say, my so my husband turned 50 uh, last year and it was thrilling to get that bowel screen um, invitation uh, in the week after his birthday. He was delighted, I can tell you, and anyone else who's recently turned 50 will know that's a thing. You know, perhaps there's something else we can do that's a little bit more friendly in the lead up to 50 because uh, that certainly is a bit of a mortality check in that and 45 think, to 49 yeah. period. And I think very importantly, um, Matt, Dixon has just posted something in the chat, which I didn't realise. Otherwise, we would have played this a lot more carefully in um, our presentations today. Yes. Is that it's closing the gap day. And um, thinking about how in all of our priority populations, there are people who have higher um, levels of risk, higher degrees of difficulty in accessing healthcare that is appropriate culturally for them um, and how we can actually make that a much more inclusive space so that we can address some of those issues. Mm, so thanks for putting that out. Yeah, and thanks. I'm really sorry that that wasn't targeted more in our um, communications today. That's it, because we were literally talking yesterday, Kate and I, about um, uh, featuring a priority population group each week, and um, that's something that we, I'm gonna, we're going to think about, Kate, doing each week, and so that would have been our group uh, rather than Shane Warne perhaps. Um, anyway, that's Shane okay. Warne as a white middle-aged man should not really be. He possibly <laughs> didn't need. That's right. <laughs> um, so thanks, Matt Dixon. Do keep in touch um, and let's let's think about how, which priority populations each week we might feature. I think that's um, a really important We'd something for us to do. suggestions in the chat as well for priority populations that you're seeing that are at particular points of disadvantage um, within your communities um, from disability perspectives, from cultural and linguistically diverse perspectives, from healthcare perspectives, um, who's falling through cracks in the system and how can we help make a difference sort of in the ways that we structure things or how can we reach out to other people to see what they're doing across our Western Victoria community. Thanks, Kate. Um, and thanks, Kathy, for popping through a question. I'm going to pin that to uh, second to Shantini's prior question for our Q&A. So uh, just like Shantini and Kathy, please keep um, popping questions to Arvind and we'll have a great Q&A session. Over to you, Arvind. All right. Um, thanks very much uh, for inviting me to talk again. Um, so um, uh, my name is Arvind Jeremili. I'm one of the infectious diseases registrars at uh, Barwon Health, working out of the uh, Barwon Southwest Public Health Unit uh, currently. Um, so uh, today um, I've been asked to talk about um, uh, immunology um, and uh, I'm definitely not an immunologist but uh, this is a, a 101 session and uh, I know Bianca mentioned going back to med school days and I've actually included some of my uh, med school slides in here so so it'll be a good uh, a good refresher for us all but um, 
Yeah, and so I guess this is in, uh, particularly in the context of COVID-19. Um, and uh, obviously uh, there's a fair bit of kind of immunological data coming out around, um, uh, I guess, acute COVID, but also um, uh, post-COVID uh, syndrome as well. So um, just, yeah, an overview of the talk. Firstly, I'll just uh, um, uh, go over SARS-CoV-2 and the replication pathway. Um, we'll talk a bit about the innate and adaptive immunity and um, go into kind of vaccines and then um, what the kind of latest data is about post-COVID syndrome and the, um, the pathophysiology of that. So just to refresh us in terms of viral replication. So um, as we all know, this is the, the SARS-CoV-2 structure, um, which we've seen uh, many times. So um, it comprises of um, a few non-structural proteins and then um, structural proteins, um, which you can see on the outside there. So the, the spike protein, obviously um, important in attachment. Um, and you can see there's uh, zoomed, in, zoomed in here is the receptor binding domain. So that's the actual part that will bind on the ACE2 receptor in the lung uh, cell tissues. We've also got um, uh, the membrane, outer membrane protein, um, an envelope, and then um, uh, a single-stranded mRNA inside, which is uh, uh, coated with a nucleocapsid protein. Um, so just in terms of uh, viral replication, so um, pretty much uh, SARS-CoV-2 mimics other um, replication pathways of, of other viruses. So that's something that's um, quite standard among viruses. Um, so firstly, we have the um, attachment uh, phase. So that spike protein binding to the ACE2 receptor um, and then endocytosing within the, the, the cell here. We get um, uh, what's called kind of fusion and uncoding. Um, so a lot of those, um, uh, essentially the, the virus uh, will uncode itself and um, uh, some of that um, mRNA will kind of uh, leak out and, and start to be transcribed within the, the cytosol, uh, sorry, translated within the cytosol itself. Um, and this will uh, help to actually form some of the proteins that are uh, important in um, translating further mRNA and replication of that. So um, this is what happens in the next kind of step where we get the um, replicase complex, um, which is uh, translated from the mRNA. And that includes things um, uh, we might remember such as the uh, RNA dependent RNA polymerase, which helps to um, uh, essentially transcribe that RNA into, uh, translate that RNA into, into uh, further uh, proteins, both structural and non-structural. We then get the uh, polypeptide, um, which is cleaved and assembled um, uh, using uh, the uh, cell's kind of own um, organelles, such as the Golgi apparatus um, and the endoplasmic reticulum um, to help uh, with some of those lipid kind of coatings as well. Um, and then we get the exo cytosis from the, the cytoplasm. Um, you can see here as well uh, on this image, um, you know, they've, they've put in kind of um, uh, places where certain therapeutics uh, can act on. And, and we've heard um, over recent times uh, about some of the oral antiviral agents. So um, I guess just for example, um, uh, the viral protease inhibitors. So that um, is the um, 
the Paxlovid, so, so the nematrovir and the Paxlovid that works to uh, inhibit um, one of the main proteases that is involved in this step. So when um, uh, so proteases cleave this kind of polypeptide initially, um, so the, the Paxlovid will work in this way to kind of block that and prevent you know, further kind of translation going ahead. Um, we, also, we all know uh, monoclonal antibodies such as citrovimab target the, the entry um, uh, by um, neutralizing the, the spike protein, um, or, uh, which, uh, which is antibodies essentially against that. And um, this pathway here is our Ligevrio or molnupiravir, which is uh, essentially inhibiting the um, viral uh, um, uh, polymerase. Um, remdesivir works in a similar kind of uh, mechanism as well. So moving on to immunology. Um, so firstly, in terms of the innate, um, well, I guess actually firstly an overview. So we have two uh, phases of our uh, immune response. Um, so we all remember we can break it up, up into kind of innate and adaptive Im immunity and I mean, this is all kind of happening at the same time, but um, the innate immune system or immune response takes place first and is usually kind of more rapid. Um, there really isn't much memory in the innate immune system, although, although um, uh, uh, emerging data suggests that you can have some innate uh, memory as well. Um, uh, but uh, includes things like, um, you know, physical barriers, so our skin, our mucosa, which is the initial kind of... Um, uh, protection mechanisms, I guess, um, uh, certain proteins such as cytokines, chemokines, um, and complement as well. And then uh, certain cells such as phagocytes, so uh, neutrophils and macrophages, um, which engulf uh, microbes, and uh, natural killer cells, which have their own mechanisms of um, uh, essentially getting rid of infected cells. Then we have our adaptive immune uh, response, which um, is a bit slower, um, takes some time, some time to kind of build up, uh, but is associated with, with memory and, and um, uh, we've heard of memory B cells and T cells. So that um, when uh, pathogens reinfect, uh, we have something that's already primed to help kind of uh, act very quickly and very targeted. Um, so these kind of, um, uh, well, uh, I guess, Components of the adaptive immune response include certain proteins. So we talk about antibodies here. Cytokines, again, um, act in both kind of the innate and adaptive uh, immune response. And then cells, we're talking about B cells and T cells primarily. Um, so I just put in this picture here, um, which is uh, essentially just showing the basic kind of um, uh, mechanism from innate to adaptive immune immunity. So initially we have our microbes that enter through the skin. We have our um, resident uh, phagocytes, so a dendritic cell, for example, shown here, which um, engulfs uh, the microbe. The um, dendritic cell will then uh, become activated and um, uh, essentially um, uh, use this microbe's um, uh, kind of protein uh, code to uh, present that on its cell surface, and then that will actually um, travel through the, the lymph nodes and then present that uh, microbe's um, signature, I guess you could call it, to um, some of these uh, T cells, So the, um, which, which then these T cells in turn get activated, 
and then they um, dr really drive their kind of adaptive immune response. So that those T cells will help B cells to produce um, uh, better antibodies, essentially, and um, will also um, uh, will also kind of um, uh, become their own like cytotoxic T cells, for example, or other uh, certain T cells that um, will help in the regulation of the immune response. Um, again, this is just uh, another overview kind of slide showing, um, uh, you know, most of the components of the innate and adaptive immune system. So um, again, uh, we have um, some of these cells, the dendritic cells and natural killer cells, which recognize these, um, uh, these microbes, um, as well as macrophages, um, which then present those to uh, T cells and the T cells would there then go and differentiate into different T cells, so cytotoxic or regulatory T cells, um, but also provide help to the B cells in, and um, really drive that kind of antibody production. Some of these terms here, so complement activation, opsonization, um, uh, you know, neutralization, this is all um, kind of uh, products of antibody um, response as well. Um, so, uh, you know, antibodies can certainly activate complement by binding to complement and, and driving those, that kind of um, complement cascade uh, that we've heard of. Um, they can also coat. So opsonization refers to coating of um, uh, certain microbes uh, so that it facilitates easier phagocytosis by, you know, the macrophages and the, the neutrophils to help um, control the, the infection. Um, and then neutralization obviously refers to um, uh, essentially um, uh, getting rid of the, the pathogen, um, uh, neutralizing it or, or killing it off, essentially. Um, so just to move on to a bit more about the innate immunity. Um, so um, uh, with innate immunity, I, I guess um, it's good to kind of just break it up into uh, some sim simple kind of easier to understand things. So um, I've just kind of broken up into receptors and, and some soluble factors here. So the way that I guess the body uh, recognizes pathogens is through um, certain receptors that um, uh, the, the phagocytes all share. So um, things like uh, TLR or toll-like toll receptors or nod-like receptors, um, but there's also some of those um, other proteins there. So they sit on the, um, you know, the, the macrophage or the, the dendritic cell surface. And essentially they're, they're um, uh, those cells are just waiting there with these receptors, um, hoping to pick up, um, you know, anything that's recognised as foreign. And the way they recognise it is through these molecules here, so PAMPs and DAMPs. So um, these are called pathogen-associated molecular patterns or, or damage-associated molecular patterns, um, which uh, essentially are kind of um, uh, proteins on microbial surfaces that um, will bind to these uh, receptors and trigger uh, an, an immune response. Um, so once that binding does occur, um, then uh, the uh, neutrophils or macrophages will undergo phagocytosis, so engulf the microbe, um, will re um, release a lot of cytokines and chemokines to help uh, uh, amp up for, uh, um, the immune system and then um, also uh, you know, drive that kind of adaptive immune system, which we'll talk about as well. Um, we then have some soluble factors um, as part of the innate sy immune system. So um, uh, a lot of these kind of proteins, which are also involved in, in either direct kind of killing of, of pathogens, so lysozymes, um, 
or, or you know, uh, driving kind of um, other pathways such as the complement pathway. And um, uh, just to refresh us, the, the complement uh, uh, system is part of the innate immune system. So it's essentially uh, three different pathways that um, all kind of result in the cleavage of this protein, C3, um, which uh, uh, triggers um, or has multiple different effects. Um, so uh, opsonization, which we talked about, so coding um, um, microbes for to facilitate phagocytosis. Uh, this kind of uh, poor formation and lysis of, of, of microbials. Um, this uh, uh, refers to the membrane attack complex, which um, is a, a series of all these kind of proteins that um, create this kind of um, uh, um, uh, this complex that uh, facilitates lysis and, and um, cell death of microbials. And then we have, you know, um, uh, um, triggering of, of more cytokines and, and chemokines to help in the recruitment of inflammatory cells as well. So this is um, just how the innate system, I guess, uh, sorry, innate immune system um, uh, relates to COVID-19. Um, so uh, we can see that initially, you know, SARS-CoV-2 um, will infect lung tissues, obviously, first. And then the innate system, innate immune system will, will kick in. So our, our, our macrophages, dendritic cells will um, see the SARS-CoV-2. So you see it's a, uh, you know, um, uh, it's pathogen associated molecular pattern and then recognize that uh, will uh, undergo phagocytosis and then um, release all these kind of different inflammatory cytokines. And the ones we primarily kind of talk about in viral infection, but particularly SARS-CoV-2 that's um, come out in some of the literature is TNF-alpha and interferon gamma. So these, um, these cytokines are very important in this kind of immune response. And what happens is that they um, trigger this, this kind of um, cytokine storm loop. Uh, and what actually happens is there's this um, process called uh, panoptosis, um, which uh, is, is, seems very complicated. Um, and uh, essentially um, what it kind of is, is um, this pathway of kind of uh, cytokine um, and then uh, molecular kind of pathway, which results in kind of um, programmed cell death. So something like apoptosis, but uh, from a, a kind of different pathway. Um, but this sets up a, a, a kind of vicious feedback loop where you've got this panoptosis and then the cytokine um, storm, um, and that results in a lot of the other kind of um, extra damage that we see in, in the other tissues. And we all know that um, you know a lot, a lot of the symptoms from having an infection is actually the immune response going into overdrive, and, and that seems to um, be what. It's happening in SARS-CoV-2 in a lot of the, the high-risk cases, obviously, that end up um, uh, going to hospital. Um, so just moving on to the adaptive immune system now. So, um, uh, yeah, so I guess um, firstly, just to talk about the different cells of the adaptive immune system and, and the receptors. So we have our B cells and our T cells. Um, the B cell receptor is actually what we know as antibodies. So that initially is on the B cell and you can see um, the antibody, the characteristic antibody shape kind of attached here. Um, on the T cell, we, we call this the, the T cell receptor um, or TCR. Basically both these um, receptors have variable regions and then constant regions as well. 
um, the variable regions are, are the parts that actually recognize the, um, the pathogens, uh, whereas the constant regions stick to the, the cells. Hey, I've been sorry to interrupt. I'm finding yeah. this incredibly um, interesting, if not slightly hypnotic. It's just okay. so good to go back to these, yeah. <laughs> these, um, these principles. But I'm just wanting to give you a five-minute warning because we'd love oh, to yeah. have some time for questions. I'm not sure, oh, sure how many sure. slides are in your box. Oh, okay. um, and yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. reason why we also couldn't part to some of the theory as well because um, these slides are excellent. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Okay, um, maybe I will try and yeah zip through this a little bit more. But yeah, happy to come back and talk. Well, do you want to come? I mean, even you could keep. We could keep the the T and B cells in the box and come back if we wanted to. I wonder if we want to get onto um, the um, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, some of this, some of this. Is that going to? Are we going to miss out on too much pre learning if we get into the reactions now? Probably not. I mean, we, uh, I guess, um, we know the main kind of mechanism and pathway, so I can talk a bit about um, vaccines and, and COVID, um, post-COVID syndrome as well. And then hang on the line afterwards and we'll maybe book you in for another sesh. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, no. um, yeah so I, I guess, yeah, um, just moving on to vaccines now. Um, uh, so uh, this is kind of the main pathway that we just talked about essentially is, you know, um, uh, getting that... Um, antigen presented um, to uh, T helper cells, which drive the B cell immune response and antibody production. Um, so that's essentially what vaccines try to do. They, they um, you know, uh, give uh, or produce some kind of antigen that triggers the immune response, uh, essentially triggering uh, a dendritic cell to present that to a T cell to help um, B cells produce uh, better antibodies um, and end memory as well. Um, so we uh, have seen a lot of different uh, vaccine candidates. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, attenuated viral vaccines, nucleic acid vaccines. So the, these are the mRNA vaccines, um, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, that we've used a lot here in Australia, um, uh, viral vector vaccines and um, protein-based vaccines. Um, so this would be, for example, Novavax, um, which uses a protein subunit. Um, again, all the, the common pathway is, is uh, presenting um, or using an antigen that presents to a, den um, a dendritic cell um, that can uh, present it to uh, T cells and then uh, T helper cells to um, drive an antibody response from B cells. Um, again, this is just another slide talking about the different vaccines, um, which we just mentioned. Um, so just in terms of, uh, yeah, I guess vaccine side effects and, and reactor genicity, which is, um, uh, I mean, it's it's a well-described phenomena that happens with a lot of different vaccines. Um, um, there's many different drivers of that. Um, so we have, you know, vaccine factors, um, which include, you know, the injection route, the adjuvant type. So, you know, whether it's a protein subunit or whether it's, you know, an mRNA uh, lipid nanoparticle, um, the dose of that, you know, we have administration factors as well that will, will tie into this and then intrinsic factors. Um, you know, the host factors essentially as well. Um, but, you know, we can have local and systemic effects um, uh, uh, from the, the vaccine. And so local, uh, primarily driven through this kind of innate um, immunity, you know, the, the cytokine response um, uh, resulting in local kind of inflammation and swelling. But then some of this will, will um, uh, inevitably um, pass into the bloodstream and cause some of those um, systemic effects, um, such as, you know, headache, fever, fatigue, things like that. Um, this was just a, a, a paper, uh, sorry, a um, yeah, study on mice um, looking at the mRNA um, vaccines and um, in particular the, uh, the 
um, lipid nanoparticle um, can cause some of this kind of immunogenicity as well. Um, so that's looking at the specific kind of um, adjuvant. Um, so the lipid nanoparticle is what comes with the mRNA. So um, it's essentially what encloses the mRNA so that it can be released um, into, into the body. Um, so just, uh, yeah, to touch on the post-COVID syndrome and, and some of the uh, immunology understanding of that. Um, so I guess firstly with um, uh, alveolar cells in, in lung tissue, so we have basically what's happening is you're getting a, the driving of kind of inflammation um, uh, via all the mechanisms that we talked about, mainly the cytokine storm, which results in vascular leakage, number one. Um, so uh, uh, increased space between endothelial cells, which uh, allow some uh, uh, the plasma to leak out into the alveolar tissue. Um, we get kind of uh, um, hyperactivity of the coagulation pathway and, and therefore results in kind of um, uh, increased uh, thrombotic events and then um, uh, further kind of inflammation. And this one, um, uh, one of my last slides, I think. So, yeah, so this is, uh, I guess, our, our latest understanding of what's happening in post-COVID syndrome. Um, so there's many kind of different theories as to what's going on. A lot of that data is still emerging, um, uh, but um, usually it, it, it kind of looks like there's three, um, you know, main kind of mechanisms. Um, uh, they've seen this kind of um, possible persistence in, in um of the actual virus SARS-CoV-2 in, in certain tissues. So we know that the ACE receptor is actually found in, in different organ systems as well, mainly the GI tract, um, uh, but also, you know, other organs, organs such as, you know, the pancreas, um, the heart and kidneys as well. So that viral persistence in some of these organs might be what's um, triggering ongoing kind of uh, immune responses or inflammation in, in, in these various systems. Um, we also have... Uh, uh, potentially delayed or defective resolution of inflammation as well. So um, uh, this can act by, um, you know, persistent kind of uh, activation of, of immune response for some reason, um, potentially maybe due to persistence of virus itself, but otherwise maybe just a lag in terms of activation of some of these immune cells and cytokines, which seem to trigger um, ongoing kind of inflammation and, and could explain lingering cyst, uh, symptoms. Uh, then um, they've shown that uh, potentially, uh, you know, there can be a reduction in the number of alveolar macrophages, um, initially in acute COVID especially, um, where they've uh, done bronchial uh, alve alveolar lavage and have actually kind of proven that in acute, in acute kind of severe COVID-19. And these are pretty important for kind of getting rid of dead uh, lung tissue and, and helping with that turnover and, and um, recovery of that. Um, so this could potentially be a mechanism for, for post-COVID as well. Um, we talk about the prothrombotic state, although not too relevant in post-COVID syndrome, just more in the acute phase. And then um, there's certainly um, immune dysregulation that seems to, to happen and uh, resulting from that um, potentially some autoimmunity um, so we know that other viruses um, can definitely uh, result in autoimmune diseases um, and, and SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 has been associated with some of these ones as well. So ITP, Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, antiphospholipid uh, syndrome as well. All right, uh, might just finish there and, and happy to take any questions. 
Great. Thank you. All right. So um, first question is from um, Shantani. Shantani, jump online if I've got this wrong. But given, Shantani says, given high caseloads of COVID, we're seeing how prepared are we to manage long COVID in general practice? Um, I guess this is probably a question, Shantani, also that might not be targeted to Arvind in terms of guidance, resources and management. But how different is long COVID from post-viral chronic fatigue um, and also long COVID in kids. And so now, you know, this sounds like probably a really good one as well, Shanity. Maybe you meant this one to be a, a, a talk. So we could probably delve into this in quite a lot of depth, perhaps, Arvin. But, um, but maybe just as a kind of quick answer, really with what, that last slide, which I think was the money slide, um, you know, you, you put the kind of mechanisms mm. to long COVID. How different is this to chronic fatigue syndrome? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And, um, I mean... Certainly, uh, you know, there's still kind of data emerging on this and and I guess there are um, certain aspects that are related and certain aspects that are different. I mean, you know, we, we certainly see persistent kind of um, uh, unusual pathologies such as, you know, um, lung dysfunction or heart dysfunction as well. Um, so I, I think that's something that would be different from chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, but, you know, some of the systemic symptoms such as, uh, you know, fatigue, um, uh, headache, uh, those kind of um, more non-specific symptoms would overlap with chronic fatigue syndrome. So, um, yeah, it's it's hard to say, you know, whether uh, these are totally different entities um, at the moment. But um, you know, there's certain things that that um, suggest they could be different. I just okay. wanted to know if yeah. there were any markers or anything that you use to monitor long COVID, or is this something that's just syndrome that you experience clinically and you just monitor it clinically? Yeah, it, it seems to be more clinical um, at the moment. I think there are studies, um, you know, that are looking at potential biomarkers. Um, so potentially, um, uh, you know, cytokines and 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 things like that that could uh, be persistently elevated. But in in day to day practice, I don't think you know we would necessarily be testing for those. It'd be more kind of clinical assessment and um, uh, trying to get objective information. So you know, things like. Um, uh, ECGs, pulmonary function tests, chest x-rays, things like that, if we were um, very concerned that um, this was it was on COVID. Thank you. Um, so how would you recommend screening for cardiovascular risk factors for post-COVID patients in the month post-COVID? And also let's bear in mind, um, oh, I thought I had it down there in the clues piece about and in women. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, Again, another good question. Um, uh, I mean, I'd probably have to defer to some of the guidelines, but I think, you know, just using kind of first principles as well, um, uh, we know that um, obviously, uh, you know, uh, people are at an increased risk of, of cardiovascular events, um, which has come out in some of the studies um, post-COVID. Um, so I think maybe targeting those that already have risk factors um, and doing, a, a, you know, a usual kind of workup for, for that. Um, so, uh, looking at, you know, lipid profiles, um, you know, trying to modify some of those risk factors, um, uh, ECG stress tests, um, depending on, on the risk. So I think it's going to be a similar thing, but just watching out for those people that um, have had COVID and, and potentially could be at increased risk. A uh, question about um, is there an overlap or parallel between post-COVID syndrome and post-immune response from mRNA vaccines? So has it been observed with the mRNA vaccine, some altered uh, immunology longer term? Um, uh, if anything, I've seen data on um, 
as you know, vaccines being protective for long COVID. Um, I, I don't know if vaccines necessarily. Do Do you mean vaccines necessarily? Kathy, did you want to um, jump on here and and target your question? Sorry, I apologise. I'm 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 in my jammies. I've got COVID. Oh, so. sorry, Kathy's <laughs> got COVID. I did forget that for a minute. I'm so sorry. So That's the... all right. No, look, it's actually it's actually a bit of a personal question. It's quite an interesting one, even though it's not uh, that exciting for me. But I had um, I had my third mRNA on the 29th of October, and then developed a cough, um, which then has transpired into being follicular bronchiolitis, um, which is a, a very rare condition uh, that can be associated with autoimmune conditions. And I do have rheumatoid, etc. I've got very high P anchor. And um, so, you know, um, and also a um, uh, MPO, which may indicate vasculitis. But I also have a friend of a friend in Sydney who has developed significant vasculitis, same antibodies, raised following the um, mRNA vaccine. And I've looked online, it's hard to see, but there are some cases worldwide where this has happened. So I'm wondering whether um, Alvin has any experience with that um, and um, whether there's any way we can actually try and access that information. Um, and I suppose the long-term effects, we, we, we won't know because of course it's all new, um, but I'm just very interested to know, you know whether there's um, uh, any way to actually access further information, I suppose. Thanks, Kath. Yeah, right. Um, to be honest, I haven't uh, had much experience myself with um, you know, uh, vasculitis as a result of, of um, vaccines, in particular mRNA vaccines. Um, uh, obviously, we know that some of the mRNA vaccines can cause um, uh, myopericarditis, um, or, or that's a thing. And, uh, you know, uh, I must admit, I'm not uh, 100% um, sure of the the mechanism for that, but but you know, it potentially could be in in uh, a similar kind of um, boat. Perhaps um, um, I'm just thinking of, and maybe perhaps Kathy, mm. um, which do you perhaps what we could do is why don't we pop this on a case template again, and then we could submit this to Callum, and whether we answer this offline or online, um, I could we could talk to Callum because I wonder if mm. that might be more in his court. Yeah, than yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank all right. You. And yeah. even uh, and even it might be. Um, yeah. All right. Why don't we do that? We'll get some more details, and we could put this to Callum. We could take this one on notice. How about that? All right. Great. Thanks okay. very much. Thanks. Um, Arvind, uh, we did have some pre-submitters as well on the slide. Um, Fee, I wonder if you might put that up. Um, so. Um, we had reports of exacerbations of new presentations of multiple sclerosis after COVID and after immunisation. What sense can we make of this from an immunological perspective? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, certainly that uh, could um, uh, be as a result of some of that kind of autoimmunity or immune dysregulation that we talked about that um, seems to, to occur um, uh, during the acute illness, but also um, in, in the post-COVID syndrome as well. Um, uh, certainly, we, yeah, as, as mentioned, we know that uh, other viruses can trigger autoimmune uh, problems and then SARS-CoV-2 itself has been uh, associated with, with that. Um, not sure about MS specifically, but um, uh, I guess this immune dysregulation could be one of those mechanisms that could cause that. Um, finding we're seeing a number of people who are finding it hard to return to previous exercise levels in the four to eight weeks after COVID infection. Um, now we, we probably might have answered this, but just thinking about some of those red flags that might suggest we need to do further workup um, is the first part of this double-barreled question. And also, how can we educate patients about what to expect in this early con convalescence or recovery period? 
Um, yeah, so uh, I guess, yeah, some of the red flags, that, you know, uh, I think it would just be yeah, more based on kind of the symptoms and, and the clinical assessment, um, uh, you know, uh, with uh, shortness of breath or, you know, dyspnea cough, things like that, that we can really kind of, if that's persisting for, you know, um, that kind of four to eight week mark, then we know that, you know, maybe we have to investigate a little bit further in this. Um, there has been studies which show that some of these symptoms seem to linger on for about six months and then kind of peter out, um, but certainly some can persist for, for a bit longer. Um, uh, I think, yeah, doing kind of the, the basic things first, um, you know, uh, just a, a, a rigorous clinical assessment and then trying to get some objective kind of data as well. So potentially things like, you know, chest x-rays, pulmonary function tests as well could, could help delineate what is kind of uh, objective here and what we can act on, uh, I guess, uh, going forward. And in terms of some of the, I mean, what was happening on that money slide, how are patients, what can we educate them to expect as, as, the, as the, the days move into weeks, weeks move into months with some of those lingering um, inflammatory mm. responses and what that might um, feel like and also what we would recommend? I mean, I know this is getting a little bit deep, but is mm-hmm. there just broad brushstrokes? Um, I think... Um, Certainly, um, you know, we can educate patients that, um, you know, there is this kind of, uh, you know, potential kind of um, uh, lingering of the immune response um, to to SARS-CoV-2. And, you know, because uh, I guess, you know, one of the lungs is the most affected organs that um, uh, in some people, and we still don't know why, um, that immune response uh, might uh, be overactive for a bit longer than 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 others, and um, you know that's something potentially we can um, talk to patients about. Um, but but also, um, I guess you know that um, the actual virus can linger in in certain organs as well, um, especially the lungs. It doesn't mean that it's infected; they're infectious, and we know that you know there's obviously viral shedding for for long periods of times. But but that's potentially um, what's triggering this kind of uh, prolonged immune response. So, so in a sense, I guess um, maybe those who've got previous lung issues, are they more likely to have this lingering lung inflammation? Uh, yeah, I mean, that would uh, make sense. And, you know, certainly immunocompromised people as well who, um, uh, I guess, take time to kind of clear the virus. Um, um, those, those kind of populations would be potentially more at risk. Um, and I think we need to kind of, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, make sure um, that, um, they're uh, in our follow-up sessions that they're um, um, not uh, experiencing prolonged symptoms. Mm, and we'll rest, 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 I guess, mm. if people are still experiencing symptoms. It may be that there is ongoing or vir- virus or inflammatory processes that de- just need time and that might be yeah, yeah. While the old rest, it'd be lovely if there's some studies on rest. I don't know if, you've, <laughs> if there's any randomized controlled trials on rest. Oh. You could probably, there's probably a few subjects here who haven't had much rest in the last <laughs> couple of years you could study. Oh, definitely. <laughs> the impact. Think, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll definitely be one of them, I reckon. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, there's one more. Um, type 2 diabetes in kids has gone up in the first quarter of 2022 with rates equivalent to the number of presentations expected annually. And this was observed, I think, in the Grampians region. So what sense of, can we, of, you know, can we make of this from an immunological perspective? Is it COVID or is it the stress? I guess yeah, I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, again, hard to tease out. But um, certainly, as, a, as mentioned in the talk, you know, the ACE2, ACE2 receptor is found in you know, pancreas cells as well. And, um, 
you know, that um, uh, can trigger, you know, immune responses um, targeting the pancreas. And I think there has been um, data about that. Um, uh, we certainly know that um, that autoimmunity or that immune dysregulation, dysregulation can can tie in here. And certainly kids obviously get immune kind of complications such as the multi-system inflammatory uh, syndrome. And so, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was that uh, link with, um, you know, other kind of autoimmune conditions such as um, uh, diabetes. But yeah, again, uh, the data is um, still lacking and, and um, uh, needs to kind of um, uh, be researched. Thank you. All right, we are going to now um, move on. There's a lot more information coming through in the chat, so thanks, everyone. Kate Graham's reminding you to access the long COVID, post-COVID pathways for resources, and there's a bit of conversation happening about what we might do with those 40 to 60-year-olds, as Kate's describing. I think we need to potentially think about this group and think about what they do in the months afterwards, and also, most importantly, though, getting back and catching up care on their cardiovascular risk screening. Um, I'm going to take any other questions on notice for future sessions, and we'll certainly be inviting you back up in there's a lot of echo of chorus of let's have a let's continue this so i think we've got to pick up on an um, adaptive immune system and the t's and b cells and i would love to spend a little bit more time on that last slide as well as we move into our long covid um series so thank you so much for your presentation today it was fantastic yeah, no um, worries, yeah. and uh, we look forward to catching up again thank you over to you naomi Thank you, Bianca. A uh, very quick one from me. So the big state government have um, a support uh, for small businesses for COVID um, safe planning for 2022. So some links for you there. A reminder that all four GPRCs have capacity to see COVID positive clients who require respiratory assessment if their regular GP is unable to or that um, they don't have a regular GP. Um, so all of those links are on the Health Pathways Referrals and Escalations page for COVID. Um, and a reminder that the Living with COVID funding is live. Um, shoot an email through to our COVID inquiry inbox if you'd like to know further about um, billing uh, for that. Uh, anybody's eligible, there's no um, minimum or maximum to that number of people you need to see and you are only being asked to see your own clients, not external clients, and your details will not be advertised. Uh, online immunisation update, um, so Tuesday the 27th of March. Um, see the um, COVID communique that went out yesterday for further details on that. Uh, topics including safety and efficacy of vaccines, the influenza program, RSV, disease and prevention and I'm going to throw to Linda Govan uh, who has a little bit more on Japanese and people. Thanks Naomi, good morning everyone. Um, just to re reiterate what Kate was saying earlier, um, the PHN has been working with the Victorian Department of Health and we've identified six practices who are supporting uh, targeted um, support of the piggeries in the infected areas in Northern Victoria. So that's so they've got supply and they'll be doing they'll be supporting the, the workforce there. If you find um, you have a patient who comes in and meets the eligibility criteria, um, can you if you could contact us in the first instance or go directly to the Victorian Department of Health? There's a limited amount of vaccine, so if we can connect those patients to GPs that already have vaccine, we will. Um, however, if not, you are able to order vaccine, but um, just contact us in the first instance. Um, and just, again, just got the updated fact sheet there. So um, information about ordering, eligibility, everything you need to know. There's a JE website that the department's put together. And there'll also be an, an email going out to all general practices today with some information from the Deputy Chief Health Officer as well regarding 
identifying patients who may have had um, the encephalitis. So lots of information coming. Just keep an eye on your inbox and contact us with any questions. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Naomi. Linda, thanks, everyone. Um, we'll make sure as well we put the video, I think, fee this week of Arvin's presentation up so that people can review that. Thanks for uh, scanning uh, our evaluation and letting us know about what you'd like to see um, in our next series. And, of course, it's going to be driven by your cases. So, um, things have been a bit quiet on the pre-submitted questions and cases. Um, I'm thinking we'll maybe move our sessions to uh, monthly but if we do get cases and questions then we'll know that you guys are demanding more um so do keep in touch let us know what's happening um all right thanks everyone we'll see you next week thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week google west Vic phn project echo COVID 19 pandemic response network and you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions. And you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks, and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.